Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Anyway, my, my guest is David Thompson, who, if he had done nothing but write the biographical dictionary in f of film, and not the 30 or 40, I've lost count books that have preceded and followed it, uh, his name would be indelibly etched in the history of great uh, uh, film historians. David, welcome to Paris once again. Well, thank you, and thank you for those kind words. Good to be with you. Always good. We've been doing stuff together for a long time. It's been a while. You need to come to Paris. <clears throat> Acting naturally, which I, at first at first reading sounds uh, okay, then the more I think about it, it sounds like an oxymoron, uh, a contradiction in terms, uh, but it's not. Uh, I, I kind of see Elliot Gould, who we may talk about later in terms of acting naturally, but why that title and, and what does it mean? Well, it, it means so many things, as you just pointed out. Um, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, I think that most of us like to feel that the actors we see on the screen are acting naturally. We sort of, we flinch from overacting. Overacting is excessive. It sort of keeps us away from the story. It's, it's the quality of naturalness that draws us into a film. And, you know, we, we can easily come to the conclusion that actors acting naturally are doing it sincerely through identification with their part, the character, the story they're telling. But if you think about it, and if you meet and talk to actors, you realize that acting naturally is a bit of a trick uh, that involves lessons they've learned over years or from the director and from the writer about how you seem to be natural. Uh, there's a technique to it. There's there's a there's a professional manner to it that is a, a question that will occupy actors all their lives, learning it. And actors will tell you, even elderly actors will tell you, they're learning still as they go along, so that the naturalness, the the sincerity, the truthfulness of it is a very, very intricate study and art. And I've always been fascinated by this sort of split between actors who c can convince you totally on screen, but then if you meet them in real life, not always, but often, they prove to be duller or emptier than you expected. And I think it's because their art, their profession, their work is to become other people and sometimes to escape themselves. This is a very complicated process, but here's the way of making it simpler. It's what we all do in life all the time. 
you and I, we can see each other on screens. We're looking at each other and we are trying out of courtesy and genuine interest to be attentive to the other person. We are listening, we are responding. We may nod or grunt or sigh or things like that. And these things seem natural. We do them naturally, but if you think about it carefully, these are little ticks or mannerisms in ourselves that we've learned over the years. We, 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 well, we are acting naturally to use your phrase. Absolutely. And we know each other quite well. And I think there's a sort of trust and confidence between them as there is in any long-term relationship so that, you know, if you're with a person you've lived with for a long time, you can get up in the morning and you take one look at their face and you say, what's up? What's wrong? Did you not sleep well? Or, you know, whatever, something like that. And it doesn't diminish the genuineness of the person you're with, but actually, if you think about it, they are doing things with their face and their body and their appearance to signal to you that there may be something wrong. This is this is the, the material of regular life. Um, it may seem disturbing or a touch of fakery to say we're acting all the time, but I believe we are. Well, I think and we I are, and if you say, you know, we listen to one another, which is what good acting, I guess, is all yeah. about it's as much lo listening and reacting and uh, you know than acting per se yes and and you know the actors <clears throat> i'm speaking for myself and I, but i think i'm speaking for most people the actors that are most beguiling are actors who don't do a great deal they don't say to you look i'm acting very well they they do it so naturally that you don't feel the oppressive structure and artifice of acting. It's like that with people. We most of us like people we feel at ease with. And that quality of ease is, is the way into most great relationships. Well, you know, to, like, you, you mentioned the, the devil in the deep to go talk about overacting and the, the eminent, uh, you know, actor uh, Charles Lawton uh, with in a submarine with Tallulah Bankhead, uh, Gary Cooper and Cary Grant. Yeah. Uh, I you know I always felt that his performance in I was confused at it. I, I believe it's advice and consent when he plays. Uh, yes. Uh, that may be probably one of the most natural performances I've ever seen him give. He was a Southern Senator in his seersucker suit, uh, per perfect casting. But in this scene, which I guess, tell about the people have to say, it's only, I guess, an hour and 15 minutes. I watched it last night. I'd never seen it. it it's a pretty good film. But Lawton is a very interesting case because from... The beginnings of his career, he was regarded as an extraordinary actor, a big actor. Began in the theater and, and, and he had always, I think, a sort of a level of force and power in him that came from the theater and having to project a long way, especially to people 
relatively far away. He was also, and this is quite tricky to express, but he did not look like the kind of actor who played lead parts in a film. You could say, and people did say about him, and I think he believed it about himself, that he was ugly, that he was not good looking. He wasn't so bad physically in this film, in, in a way. He's hairy. He didn't look as bad as he normally did. Absolutely. But the, I mean, something happened with this film, Advice and Consent, where the director, Otto Preminger, I think, and the other actors maybe, and the story, and the feeling that he was he was actually a supporting player in the film. And that's a very interesting part altogether. I think stardom is very difficult to carry. Being a supporting player, and most of us in life are supporting players. And for the other people in our life, we are in a sort of pact of supporting each other. I think that's a very good situation for actors. And this is a film where he didn't have to be the star. He didn't have to be the kind of monstrous character that he normally played, like Captain Bly, let's say. Or well, this was a setup. This was the preparation for Captain Bly. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, he, 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 he gives a beautiful, thoughtful performance playing the type of man he did not really know. I mean, Charles Lawton, I don't think, had great experience of the American South. But I feel, feel I think you feel, that he's wonderful in the part. Well, he, captured, he captured what I see and know about that, that character. Absolutely. That senator. When Absolutely. I wore a seersucker suit on a, on a ship, my, my, my cousin's ship, a battleship in, in San Diego with the seersucker suit, they thought yeah. I was a Southern senator. No one else wore a suit like that. <laughs> you know, I know also, I guess when I'm listening to Tallulah Bankhead in, in that film, if I close my eyes, I'm not sure if I'm listening to Betty Davis or Tallulah Bankhead. I don't know well, who I, came first. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bankhead, I think, did. But <laughs> yeah. I, only by her. She was a bigger figure before Betty Davis. But they were both very interesting examples of people who clearly wanted to act and wanted to play movies, but they sort of had an air of disdain about doing it, uh, which was very courageous. It didn't work for Bankhead. She, she didn't really commit to a career in, in the way Betty Davis would do. Betty Davis, for me, professionally, is one of the great heroic actors, actresses in film. And, and, um, I don't think she's dated a bit. She seemed a little mannered when she first did these things. And I think that put some people off. And there was a general feeling that Betty Davis wasn't exactly pretty in the way that women were then supposed to be and still often are supposed to be in films. But she had a courage and uh, a confidence that were unrivaled. And I think it's what we treasure about her. Yeah, I mean, there's a show. I mean, uh, now Voyager and uh, and Eve are off right off the bat. Are two films we could spend an hour talking about, in, in my so, opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, no, uh, you know, we don't want to bring Lee J. Cobb into this when we're speaking about overacting. But uh, 
kind of powerful in a way. But let's go back to Anthony Hopkins. Early in this book, you talk, if we want to talk about the the reverse of what we see in Lawton in this film, the subtlety. And I'm always reminded of that that great scene in with Emma Thompson in Remains of the Day when oh, yeah. he clutches that book. He just can't, uh, and you feel his pain. Talk about Anthony Hopkins. And, and you, I guess, came in this particular book. We're talking about the movie The Father. The Sun has just opened here in... Uh, in Paris, which I have not seen. Well, he has a, the father's, in, um, the son is, I, in my opinion, not a terribly good film, not a very good film. Uh, and he has I, just, I agree with you on that. Yeah. He has just one scene in it mm. and he really steals the picture. And it, it's because he's playing an unpleasant man. And a lot of actors do not like playing unpleasant people because professionally they believe that's bad for you. Uh, people like Gary Cooper, let's say, one of the great, great stars of American film. Gary Cooper wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be liked. He wanted to be admired. He wanted to think well of the people he was presenting on screen. Hopkins, I think, has always had a sort of daring but an appetite too, that is happy to be unpleasant, to be frightening, to be dangerous. And I think, I think one reason why the Silence of the Lambs was so important in his career was that he found a villain, a, you know, a pretty terrible guy, uh, and he had the courage and the sense that a part of himself could come out in that. And I think Hopkins, uh, a genius actor, uh, but a man with uh, furies inside him, uh, but brave enough professionally to let that show. And time and again, the Hopkins uh, performances that I think mean the most are ones where he turns loose that wilder, nastier side of himself. And in, in The Sun, he is the father to the son, and he has just this one scene, and it's a scene of unbridled malice <laughs> and nastiness, and he does it with a sort of a lyrical quality. Almost the glee, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you sort of feel him saying, well, if you don't like this, if you're intimidated, so much the worse for you. And you know, there are people like that in life who sort of need to dominate the room and that people generally we don't like too much we're not comfortable with but um it, it's it's a kind of power can work amazingly well in film and one of the things i sort of discovered really in thinking about this book is how often actors find themselves in playing unpleasant parts. Uh, Anthony Perkins in the late 50s was attempting to fit in as a likable young man. And he was a very clever actor. And, and there were films like Fear Strikes Out where he, he did interesting work. But when he played Psycho, it was as if he had discovered 
himself. Now, I don't mean to say that Anthony Perkins was remotely like <laughs> a Norman the Bates, kind of, the kind of killer Norman Bates is, but I do believe that Perkins was liberated by the chance to pretend he was that person. And, and that that's a factor in the lives and the career of actors. And Hopkins is a, is, a, is a great example of it. When Hopkins is playing a nice guy on screen, he's less interesting than when he's playing someone you're a little frightened of. I would agree. Uh, jumping, uh, one of the things that I always discover when I read your new books is you turn me on to something I wasn't aware of. In this case, uh, Frank Langella, who I'd first seen in an episode of Marcus Welby in 1969 yeah. when he had a lot of hair, um, in, in the film called Starting in the uh, Starting in the Evening, which is uh, somewhat about the book business and something about uh, about growing old with a certain amount of dignity. Uh, Talk about that film, because I think people should, particularly the same people that are watching uh, The Father or have uh, watched Amour or the beautiful Sarah Polly film, uh, Away From Her, of uh, Alzheimer's and Aspects of Aging. Um, and I think people should see this film. I thank you for putting it out to me. Well, you know, the film is largely, um, it's only what, is it? Is it 10 years old? Maybe uh, not. A, a little bit more, I think 2007, thereabouts, okay. Um, and when I saw it, I thought it was one of the great performances I'd ever seen. And, and I have never been sort of that enthusiastic about Langella. And I, I think that his career was very up and down. He didn't really find himself. And here he's doing truly great work, I think. And mm -hmm. the film, the film was not just dismissed, it was as if it had never existed. And I think a lot of the people listening to us now will not know about the film. And, and, and as you've discovered. I didn't and, know the film, right, exactly. No, but I mean, you go to it, and I think you would agree, it's an extraordinary film, and because of him and, and his, his total identification with the part. And no, and the relationship with the daughter. Or the, there's so many subtle things going on that are, you know, at, at our age, we can appreciate uh, yes. these things are coming into our life. Uh, I want to jump ahead a little bit because we don't have an unlimited amount of time. But I want to remember Miss Louise Brooks and uh, yes. and Mr. Pabst and uh, the box of Pandora. Yeah. Well, and not a lot of people know the film or her. Well, Louise Brooks was a figure of the 1920s she was um she was very beautiful she had a an instinct for making her appearance ultra modern she you know she she played with hairstyles in a way that was really well i think the bob was her right that's right and but i think she was very smart and quite a difficult young woman and she never settled in as a star in American films, I think chiefly because her essence was to get at that kind of danger that we were talking about with Hopkins. And she made some interesting American pictures, but never never became a mainline, frontline star. And she was invited in 27, 28 to go to Germany by the 
director G.W. Pabst, who was a very prominent figure, to play Lulu in a film called Pandora's Box, which is taken from two plays by Frank Wedekind. And she didn't really speak German, but she and Pabst formed a very good working relationship. They had a brief affair. Um, and Pandora's Box is one of the great films of all time, in my opinion, because she plays a woman. Silent film, just to remind the audience. Silent film. But she plays a woman who has the sort of the solitary conviction and force of a man. And this takes the form of really trying to seduce or seducing, not just trying, virtually every man who comes along. And, uh, you know, she, she's self-destructive in the sense that you can see how badly she's going to end. But uh, it's a dazzling performance. And her career never really went anywhere because I think she was quite difficult. But she was so far ahead of her time. And it's only in recent decades, really, excuse me, that the film has come back into fashion. There's going to be a big screening of it at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. Oh, really? Okay. And But, you know, I think people now see that although the film is nearly 100 years old, um, it's as if she filmed it yesterday. And she's gloriously beautiful and seductive, but frighteningly dangerous. And she wrote a book called Lulu in Hollywood, which I suspect but, you've read. She proved to be a very good writer, and she wrote a lot of essays, which are collected in that book, about her time in Hollywood. And, for instance, she, she wrote about Bogart, Chaplin, Garbo, Lillian Gish, with an insight that was way beyond the times when she was writing. She also made a comment, uh, she was near the end of her career, she's making films with Republic with John Wayne, and she looked over and said, he's not an actor, but he's the personification of, of mythology. Or something that I, I mean, and she, how, she nailed it. That's she was. I, I, oh, yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. She, I, can, I can't yeah. wait to read Lulu. Yeah, no, no. It, it, it's, it's a very interesting book. And, and she's an amazing figure. And she died up, uh, up in Rochester, New York. I think she died there. No, she did. Uh, she was uh, supported by somebody in Rochester. Yeah. Yeah. A solitary life, but but visited by people like Kenneth Tynan, who wrote a great profile about her for the New Yorker, which helped bring her back into currency. Uh, you know, I mentioned early on Elliot Gould. I had a conversation with him uh, recently, and you and I loved the Long Goodbye. And in the program we did uh, in San Francisco many years ago, with yeah. the, the continuity of that song. Uh, the yeah. music throughout the film, and, and I, you know, and I said to me at the outset, talking about acting naturally, I, I, his laconic, uh, 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 you know, character in, as he as he played Marlowe, uh, the insouciance, if you will, of the character, I, I thought was brilliant, and still and holds I, up beautifully. I totally agree, and, and and you know, when that film came out, nineteen seventy one, two, three, okay. Um, a lot of people hated it because we were accustomed to Philip Marlowe being Humphrey Bogart or Dick Powell. And uh, Gould was like a guy brought in off the street 
to play the part, who sort of said, well, I don't understand the confidence and the cocksure attitude of that previous Marlowe, but I'll sort of, I'll just get along with Marlowe in my own way. And, and again, that's a film that was a flop when it came out, but I think by now it's recognized as one of the great cool performances in American film. And I, I regret that Gould was not able to do more work in that line. I don't think Hollywood ever understood Elliot Gould. Maybe he didn't understand himself. That happens with careers and actors, I think. Well, he started, he was a child actor. He started out, you know, at the Professor Children's School in New York. But this is, you know, uh, I mean, had a, he had, has great respect and admiration for Altman. They also did California Split, as you and I have talked about. But I, I, I think that Altman, uh, early on, I guess he made the first meeting, perceived that he was Marlowe. You are Marlowe. And yeah. it gave him an enormous amount of latitude uh, to, uh, to some degree, uh, ad lib you know in the role as he began yeah. to fill it out yeah. uh, and then fundamentally i guess the great anach you know, i always saw it as somewhat anachronistic is here's a guy uh, driving a 1940s car has 30s values living in the 70s you That's know when he plugs jim bouton man he can't let him get away with it you That's know bouton is the 70s oh. man i'd let it yeah. fly yeah. doesn't do yeah. it and I, yeah. I every time and then of course we have uh, sterling hayden who's just astonishing in that film god great actor great actor yeah, yeah. I want to go. I want to jump backwards now because you also turned me on to something that I had never seen was the dark, dark hours. This is a James Dean, who many people don't know, did an enormous amount of television prior to coming to Hollywood. He only did yeah. three films in Hollywood. Um, and this is uh, Ronald Reagan playing a doctor and him uh, uh, he playing a killer. Uh, I think I asked you uh, in, in an email, this fabulous jazz score. Now, I can't. I, I was it Chet Baker? Do you? It's not credited, and I can't figure out who it is. I don't know who it is, what it is. I don't think it's Chet Baker, but but okay. I could be wrong. It's certainly the period where it could be Chet Baker. But we're I talking heard... about over, overproduction values in a twenty-eight million General Electric theater, and yeah. they're yakking. You know, they're they're very hip. They're very beat. The whole dialogue. Right. I, I, maybe it kind of prefigures uh, Rebel in, in a little bit of, the, of his character. Right. But, it's sort of beyond rebel in a way. It's more surreal. The idea that he's playing with Ronald Reagan, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a bathrobe, in, a, in his bathrobe. Yeah. Yeah. But there again, in um, in that Dark Dark Hours episode of General Electric Theater, he's playing a very nasty guy, and you feel that he exults in it. That he's he's letting free things in himself that actually in his movies were much more restrained because he had to be, certainly in East of Eden and Rebel, he had to be someone the audience would love. Well, that can be a bad trap for actors, I think. And, and, and it's not a good destiny for us if we're interested in depth and variety of character. But I would really say that this half hour episode of The Dark Dark Hours is one of the greatest things Dean ever did. And, Which and, is available on YouTube for those who are listening. That's right, people to it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. and, and I mean, the, the, the soundtrack, I, I've got to figure out what that was all about. You know, and when you when you talk about him, I mean, you might almost say that when he got to Jet Rink, he was beginning to show a, a, a little more of that character that he might have liked to have played. Right, yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, but uh, 
we can't mention him without mentioning Kazan. And Kazan has been in every conversation I've had with anybody. In the, I had a conversation with John Lahr recently. I heard that conversation yesterday. Yeah. I thought it was quite good. I enjoyed it a lot. If yeah. I say so myself. But the, uh, yeah, no, the uh, Kazan and go you're back. How many times have you read A Life? <laughs> oh, it, it, it's, it's a Bible. But you know, there again, it's the Bible of a man who takes pleasure in being unlikable. Because, you know, I mean, Kazan tells it as it was, or largely as it was, mm -hmm. and he doesn't come out of his own book that well. And he knows it, and he loves it. Delights in it, yeah. You know, he, he, I, apparently when he was, uh, this may have been some part of his, uh, his style, uh, you know, Massey came from a very formalized uh, training. He was Canadian, almost British, I guess, and Dean coming out of the actor's studio. And, and they were at odds because of their styles and didn't like each other. And well, he fomented he fomented that dislike because it was so ingrained in the characters he was. I think I think he almost created it. Okay. He, he took the two actors aside and told them personally, look, I know this is going to be difficult because Raymond Massey doesn't really like you or James Dean doesn't really like you. So you're going to have to work against that, which of course was perfect because it's the story of a father and son who are in great antagonism. And they had very different ideas about how to play their part. But there they are in the same frame. And it works brilliantly. One of the great father-son relationships in film. Yeah, when you think of his only three films, and I, again, I, I go back to what you said about the uh, the GE thing. You you see, you know, not only is he is he angry, but he's he's vulnerable. He's yes. enormously oh, yeah. he he's tortured. Yeah, you know, uh, he's 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 tormented, and in a sense, he's almost relating to uh, at, at the end to Reagan like a father. Uh, very complex character. He's sort of intimidating and self pitying at the same time. And he reminds me of Donald Trump, <laughs> who is, I think, probably the most riveting actor around at the moment. And that does not speak well for acting. <laughs> I, I want to, uh, you, you, you also t talk about casting, you know, I mean, how can, uh, uh, you know, you can't imagine Eve without Betty Davis. I'm going to go back and look at, at Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. It could have been Anne Sheridan and Ronald Reagan. Uh, the magic of casting. Are there, you know, there are people like Lynn Stallmaster who recently died, uh, people that have really done that. What Are they so conscious of what, not only what the part requires, but what the public requires out of, out of the film to make it successful? Yeah, I think casting is a magical craft, and, and I I regret that there's not an Oscar for casting because I think it's fundamental to films. And you know, I've talked to directors sometimes who will say after two or three days shooting on a film, "Oh, I hate this film; it's hopeless." And you say, "What? Why? What's wrong?" And he said, "I cast the wrong person." And I only realized it. I'm not going to name names here, but I cast the wrong person. And after two or three days, I realized the film is doomed because the person I thought was right and I cast them is wrong. And I don't know how to explain it. And it didn't come clear to me until we started filming and I saw the person 
on screen and they were wrong. And it's a mystery and a terribly delicate issue in the making of films because sometimes the providence of casting can be amazing. For instance, All About Eve was going to be Claudette Colbert. <clears throat> Good actress, accomplished actress. And she got injured very short time, a week maybe, before shooting was about to begin. So Betty Davis was slotted in. Now, if you say to kids who were not born when she was working, Betty Davis, they'll say, oh, what's that all about Eve? I mean, she is one of the most natural pieces of <laughs> casting you can think of. She makes the film. I can imagine Claudette Colbert in the part, and I think she would have been at least competent and probably quite good, but she doesn't get Margot Channing. No. And uh, that was blind luck in a way that it turned out that way. And, and the, the history of movies is full of anecdotes about casting like that. Where people well, it's also economics. I remember there was a, a a wonderful interviewer in Canada who who died fairly young, and I I watched the interview with Robert Evans, and I forget yeah. the film they were talking about, uh, Brian something, and uh, he wanted Nicholson for the role, who would have been ideal for the role, but he didn't have the money to pay Nicholson, and he wound up getting Robert Redford, who was back bankable box officer but the wrong guy for the film. But in Evans, you know, and I, I loved Evans, you know, but in his his role as a producer, he's got to get it out to the screen. So there Absolutely. were compromises he had to make. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I'm sure that when all cast Elliot Gould, there were people who said, oh, uh, he's not going to work. And he didn't work at the time the film opened for an audience. And it's, it's, it's not an adequate answer for Altman to turn to people and say, oh, wait, 50 years, 60 years, then right. you'll see how right I am. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, sometimes that's the way it works out. Yeah, there's a certain kind of magic. Uh, let's, we have a little bit of time left. I want to talk about supporting players. We can talk about the Lubitsch gang and other groups, troops like that. Or, But I want to talk about Thelma Ritter. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw her in The Miracle on on 30, uh, 34th Street with that great Brooklyn accent, uh, talking to Mr. Macy about Mr. Gimbel. And, and then from that point on, I mean, any film she's in is already better just by her presence. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, she was always only going to be a supporting actress. Uh, I, I'm sure she knew very early on that just she was desperate to act. And most actors are desperate to act. She was never going to get Claudette Colbert parts or Betty Davis parts. She was always going to be a sidebar. Uh, but I think she knew and people told her that she could uh, she could do certain sidebar parts amazingly well and and she was often very funny and caustic and sarcastic she got laughs but there is this film pick up on south street sam fuller where she plays a woman who just uh tries to sell ties and things like that on the street she's very poor she's old and she feels she's getting too old for everything and she gets caught up in this crime conspiracy situation, not of her doing. And there's a moment in the film, I'm sure you know it, but 
other people may not, where she goes back to her room at the end of the day where she's been walking the streets, trying to sell neckties. And she realizes that there is someone in the shadows in her room who is there to kill her. And she realizes that her life is coming to an end. It is one of the great moments in film. And I don't know that anybody could have done it better. It's it, it, it's a great moment in the script and other actresses could have done it and been good and touching in it. But it's as if Thelma Ritter had waited 60 years in her life for the perfect moment to come. You know, it's New York in August. It's 90 degrees with 90% humidity. She's exhausted. Her bones are giving out. She doesn't have any energy left to fight. She's just going to she's going to die. And that's a very good way of putting it. There are moments in life where we lose energy. Actors are afraid of doing that because they are they feel they're appreciated and enjoyed for their energy. But in that moment, she has, as you say, the energy is drained away. The body is left and the body has not got long to go. And she's amazing. Amazing. It's astonishing. Uh, we have a couple of minutes, David, and I, I, I want to get a little heads up, and we can talk on this subject uh, for, forever, but you have another book coming out. In a, it's like the first time I think you've had two books coming out in the same year, even from another uh, publisher, on the, uh, on the Second World War. Not the Second World War. Um, it's called The Fatal Alliance, A Century of War. Oh, okay. So it begins really with 1914. But it, 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 it's the story of a century of warfare told through the movies. And, and what the book really gets at, ultimately, is that why are there so many war films? Because whatever we say, we love war. And we love watching it on screen. It's terrible. It's tragic. But we can't resist it. And this has a lot to do with why our society keeps going to war. So it's it's a sort of, it's an analysis of that martial attitude as seen through the movies. Uh, you dedicate this book to uh, Zachary Gray Thompson. Who is Zachary yeah. Gray Thompson? Zachary Gray Thompson is my son. And, and um, he- and What did he do to deserve this? Well, what he did to deserve this is that uh, at the time of COVID, he came to live with us, and he's still with us. And uh, it's been a sustaining thing for Lucy, my wife, and for me. And he is now a film publicist. He works with Karen Larson in San Francisco. You sure. know, some old friends. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's been just a joy to talk about movies with him and, and to see him learning about them and growing up with them. And, you know, I'm a very lucky man in that I, I have five children uh, and I'm wildly proud of all of them and I have good relationships with all of them. And uh, he's, the, he's the youngest and he's been here through the writing of the book. He was the person who frequently when I had a Zoom call, would come and fix the Zoom call up for me. And you well, know. where was he this morning? <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at Terrence at Paris-Expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at Paris-E-X-P-A-T.com. 
and visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.